Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I'm so excited to have Josh Stumpenhorst on the podcast. Josh is a Learning Commons Director at Lincoln Junior High School in Naples, Illinois, which oversees the library, makerspace, video production lab, and school arcade. In addition to his director role, Josh is a blogger, presenter, and author of The New Teacher Revolution and Drawn to Teach. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate being here. (laughs) And as you know, the show is centered on leadership development, and I would love to hear your personal leadership journey on how you went from the classroom to a Learning Commons Director. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. It's one of those that I don't know how it happened. You know, I, I spent 13 years in a classroom as a uh, sixth grade history and English teacher and kind of had leadership thrust upon me with some of the kind of recognition that I received for some of my work, Illinois Teacher of the Year, you know, Global Fellow with Pearson, just a lot of things that kind of put me in that position, whether I wanted to or not. And I think that happens to a lot of teachers, you know. And so that was a big part of my journey in terms of, just not just a classroom teacher, but you know, sometimes we, th- we think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And then kind of shifting, uh, my district was looking at the library space and creating, I mean, we call them learning commons and being a hub of learning, of making, of literacy and all of those things. And, and I was kind of put into that role and, and, and leading from that role around all of those things with kids and teachers. Oh man, I just, I love every minute, <laughs> every minute of my job is, is just amazing. But yeah, it's kind of one of those things where people ask me, how'd you end up where you ended up? And I don't have an answer. You know, things just kind of happen and I just kind of went with it really. And people say, well, what's next? And I say, I don't have the foggiest idea what's happening tomorrow, let alone two years, five years, 10 years down the road. And I just want to talk about your position because you talked about it before as a library space, but now it's really a learning commons. Can you just talk about that transition? Yeah, you know, I, I, I give my credit a lot to the district because I know a lot of schools are, are getting rid of libraries, which is a huge travesty in, in my opinion. And my district said, well, we want to shift what the library's purpose is. You know, as Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name smells as sweet. But we really wanted to repurpose the physical space, the environment, and the culture. And so they shifted to this learning commons model. So we have the literacy, we have the library, but we have these really vibrant learning spaces with maker spaces, with you know, virtual reality, all these things to basically say, you know, we're more than just books. Books have tremendous value and, you know, and, and all those things are so important, but we can be and we can do so much more. And, and the, the amount of kids that we have coming into our spaces and the things they're doing, you know, was, was unheard of two, three, five years ago. And it's just, it's pretty exciting to be a part of it. And people always kind of joke with me about, you know, you you play with toys all day with kids and or you even have books in your library. And I always quick to tell them our circulation has actually gone up. I cut 7,000 books from our library circulation and we have more kids checking out books and more books. And I think it's just about creating that space where kids want to be. And was it kind of a mind shift for your staff as you reworked that space? Yeah, it was. It was because even myself, because... I came into the position in my own building. So I'm in the same building that I taught, you know, sixth grade for 13 years. And a lot of people, myself included, viewed the library space as go sit down, check out your books, be quiet and read. And, you know, you're going to get shushed and you're going to have to, you know, do all these certain protocols and things about this is how library runs. And so for the first probably, you know, this is my third year. For the first year and a half, it was convincing the math teachers 
that the library was a space for them, convincing our foreign language team that the library had things to offer their curriculum and their students. And now I'm kind of in this really sweet spot where people come to me. You know, today I got an email from my French teacher who says, hey, Josh, can we get the Google Expeditions next Thursday to take the kids to Paris? And I said, you're going to have to navigate it because I can't speak anything and I can't pronounce any of those French words. Um, but we have, you know, the teachers are coming to us and seeing the value beyond just, you know, a literacy value, which still is there. Um, but, man, I do so much work with science and math and social studies. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. So I want to talk about your educational career. What was one of the most challenging or impactful experiences you had that enhanced your skills as a leader? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. I was I was talking to a friend about this, you know, 2012, and, and I share this story often. I was selected as the, the state teacher of the year for the state of Illinois. And people always say, oh, that's probably the best year of your life. And I say, no, it was the worst year of my career um, because, and there's this great Greek story called the tall poppy syndrome and it's this whole concept of there's a story of this this greek guy who goes from one city to another and says hey how do i rule my city and he walks out to a field and he cuts the tops out of every tall poppy that's out there and the, the concept behind it, or the the metaphor there is is taking the heads off the tall people the people who are not physically tall but the people who are standing out the people who are doing things that may make other people feel inferior or a sense of jealousy and that year was terrible because I had people who told me I didn't deserve that recognition. I had people that told me I did and I needed to live up to it and everything in between. And so there's a lot of, I had to lead from the back. You know, I even told my principal, I don't want to present at any staff meeting. I don't want to present at PD days. I just want to teach and have people see what I'm doing without having to say anything. And that was a huge shift in what I used to do because I used to be the person that would stand in front of the faculty meeting and say, hey, here's this great tech resource or this great thing that I'm doing, you should try it to, I just need to shut my mouth and leave from my classroom and let people, you know, kind of lead by example. And that was quite a journey for me because I used to be kind of bullish, like, hey, we should be doing this. And now I realize, you know what? Sometimes the best way to do things is just to do it, let people see it and just follow that example. And man, that was, that was a, learning, a learning year for me in so many ways. So in addition to that learning experience, what do you believe were the most difficult leadership skills to develop? I think if you ask a lot of teachers and probably administrators as well, one of the biggest difficulties as being a leader is when you have somebody that you're, that you're leading or you're trying to lead that are not on board, that are obstinate, that are, you know, I mean, let's be blunt here. There are teachers that sometimes we scratch our head and say, I don't know if I'd want my own child in that classroom, but that's not good enough. We have to think of a way to help them. And I often tell people, you know, every teacher is teaching the best they know. Every teacher is doing the best they can. They just may not know better and they may not know there's a different way of doing things. And I still think about, and I think a lot of teachers do their first year of teaching and think, man, I wish I could go back to that classroom and apologize to all of those kids because that's what we knew. That's what we knew at that time. And, and hopefully, you know, I'm 17 years in and I think I've learned a lot, but I also know I have a lot to learn. And so just being able to recognize that everybody's in that space, everybody's in their own journey, and what can I do to help them learn from me, but what can I learn from them? And that's a, a skill that I've had to develop, that whole you know empathy, and that's not an easy one, but one that I, I constantly work on because I know that it's an area that I need to be better at. For those who do not hold a leadership position, what are some other ways our aspiring leaders can make an immediate impact? 
Well, I think that you don't need to be, because a lot of people think, you know, leadership is a title. Leadership is you're an administrator, you're a department head, you're a team leader or whatever it is. But, but I, I just, I don't see it that way. And I think about the folks that have been leaders in my career, you know, a guy by the name of Jay Pape who taught two doors down for me, he was a teacher. And yet I contribute so much or attribute so much to my development as a teacher to him. And all he did was just taught and offered his advice to people in a way that was just kind of like, you know, a father or an uncle figure, not a, a leader telling you that you're doing something poorly or you're doing something bad and you need to be better. And so for teachers who are not in a, you know, quote unquote leadership role, just be good models and be nice and be great to your people and just share what you're doing because that's the only way we're ever going to get better is by learning from each other. So what do you believe is the largest barrier to the success of leaders? Oh, people like me, probably, you know, I think about, you know, folks that want to try things and you have somebody that's the skeptic and I put myself firmly in that camp that anytime a principal stands in front of our building and says, hey, we're going to try this. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why? And, and I constantly ask the question why. And I think I need to for the sake of our students, because sometimes we do things, you know, we were talking earlier about state testing and some of the things that we do because of that. And I think, why? Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this when we know there's not a lot of value in it? So for leaders, I mean, my biggest piece of advice for them is to just put themselves in those other shoes, recognize what it was like being a teacher or to be a follower and, and to be told something that you maybe didn't believe in and, and, you know, kind of look at the both sides of that. So as a leader, what is one area you want to change in education? Just one? I only uh, get one area that I want to change. <laughs> we only have so much time, so yes. <laughs> well, I know. Well, obviously, you know, I speak a lot about data that I, I really, it's not that I'm anti-data. I'm anti-data-driven decisions. We use that phrase a lot, and I'm a big fan of kid-driven decisions. And, and I think we, we beat the data horse to death, and we use it to justify things that I think in our heart as educators we know aren't great. And I think we can use it as a piece of the puzzle, but we, we put way too many, too many eggs in that basket. And I think we just need to have more conversations with kids, and we can learn so much more from that than looking at a, you know, a number on a piece of paper. Josh, what is one initiative you've implemented on your campus that you're extremely proud of? I, I don't like to take credit for anything because typically most of the things that I've done has been because of somebody else's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I, I'm really proud of, though, we've done innovation days in our building for going on, I think, eight or nine years now. And it's just a day, you know, genius hour, which I know a lot of people are familiar with. And it's just a day where we take kids and say, hey, what are you interested in learning about? You have a whole day to learn about it. Create something, share it. And, and it's just kind of taking hold and we see little pockets of, you know, genius hour and things kind of coming off of that. Um, and it's, you know, like I said, eight or nine years going strong. And I, I feel pretty proud about, you know, being part of that, you know, initiative that we started, you know, geez, <laughs> seems a long time ago now that we're th saying it out loud. <laughs> and I know another initiative and passion you have is to find ways to get kids to read more and to find that love. So what are you doing on your campus to get students to actually find that love of reading? Yeah, you know, it, it's tough because, uh, you know, I have two sons and one loves to read and one and not so much. And, you know, there's, there's an old cliche, you know, a kid, uh, kid that's not a reader just hasn't found the right book. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe that. And, and I think the best thing I can do is say, this is what I'm reading. And I think if we have good relationships with kids and we share with them that we're reading, they're going to gravitate toward those books. You know, when I can walk up to a, I had a seventh grade boy coming today and say he hates reading. And I was like, all right, well, tell me what you do like. And he talks about his love of basketball and he likes rap music. I said, all right, let's get over here and get Kwame Alexander's crossover. Yes. And he's going to read it. And, you know, by the end of the day, he stopped by and said, hey, I started getting in this book. I love it. And so I think for, for me, the greatest tool I have is being a reader myself 
and knowing the kids. So I can say, hey, I know that kid. Here's a book I know is going to connect with what they're interested in. Having a makerspace on your campus, I know a lot of students probably go into that space, may not even know what to do. So how do you encourage your students to creatively think and problem solve within that space? You know, I've always believed that kids are naturally curious. Kids are natural creators. I mean, you look at a, you know, a three-year-old in the backyard with a Tonka truck. You don't need to tell them what to do. You don't need to tell them how to create or make or play. Um, they just do it. And, and I think sometimes we get them to school and we, we suck that out of them. Because we tell them what they got to learn, when they got to learn it, and how they're going to learn it. So the makerspace, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, how have you put the things that you have in there? And I didn't know how to use any of it. 3D printers, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. We got a laser cutter coming. I, I don't know how to use it. But it's there because kids have requested it. Kids have sh- shown an interest in it. You know, we're flying drones on Friday in the library because kids want to do that and they want to learn from it. And, and that's really what it's about is creating a space where, you know, for some kids – School sucks. School is not exciting. School is not something they plug into. But they come to our space and the makerspace and they find a home and they find a value and, and that's what it's really all about. So for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? My biggest advice, anytime you find yourself in a leadership position, the biggest skill you can develop is empathy. And I mentioned that earlier, is is understanding the people who are with you on that journey, the people who you are trying to lead, where they're coming from, what skills they bring, what deficits they bring. Um, and use that to your advantage. But the moment you lack or lose that empathy and that connection with who you're leading, um, you're not, you're not going to be successful. And that's, I mean, it's, it's really as simple as that, in my opinion. I introduced you as the author of Drawn to Teach. I have the book. I've read the book. Absolutely love it. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about it. So for those who haven't had the opportunity to read Drawn to Teach, can you just give us a quick synopsis for our aspiring leaders? Yeah, I mean, my quick synopsis is awesome. Everybody should have it. (laughs) Yes, I agree. (laughs) So, you know, I I personally, and and I'm a hypocrite here, right? Because I think there's too many books out there. I think there's a lot of fluff out there. And, you know, when I I went down the journey of writing another book, I, I said, I want it to be something different. I want it to be something that nobody has done. And I want it to be fun. I want it to be accessible. And I want it to be practical. And I was reading Dan Pink's Johnny Bunko, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, and I thought, this is a graphic novel. I, I've never seen a graphic novel for teachers. And that was kind of where it started. And I wanted teachers to read that book to see pictures of characters that they can relate to, whether it was a colleague, whether it was a student, whether it was a parent, and say, hey, I've been there. But then give them practical solutions and how to, how to just get better and grow as teachers. Um, but in a very positive, complimentary, and, and accessible way. And I, th- I think we've done that. I mean, the feedback we've gotten is that we did that. But yeah, I was just, man, it was, a, it was a thrill, a thrill to, to do that project. Well, as a former art teacher, I dug right in from the get-go. So um, <laughs> tell me about the artist from the book. So the artist, is, it's wild. So it's uh, a kid, not a kid anymore, because he's a couple years <laughs> older than I am. But it was a kid that grew up down the street from me. Um, when I was, gosh, I was five, six, seven years old, we moved away, but my parents stayed in contact with their parents, kind of friends of the family. We, I'd see him once every other year or so if I was lucky and connected with him on Facebook. And I said, Hey, Trevor, I got this idea. Do you want to do a graphic novel? And we had some conversations like, yeah, let's do it. And he's super talented because if I had done it, you would be looking at stick people, you know, it would have been really, really horrific art. And he brought just his creative juices, not only to the art, but the narrative as well. And we were talking about, you know, teachers that we had that we may or may not have put in the book, um, teachers of our kids, students that we've had. It was just, yeah, there's a lot of hidden meaning in those characters that one day I will tell people. (laughs) (laughs) 
So in addition to your position at your school, you speak at conferences and obviously you write and you're very active on social media. How did you find your voice beyond your school? Oh, that's a good question. I, I would actually say probably Twitter, where it started for me, finding that voice. And I had gone to a conference. I was at the ISTE conference in Denver, 2010, 11, something like that. And I sat next to somebody and I was totally creeping them out because I was like, what's this tweet deck thing you got up? And they kind of talked me through it. And so I started blogging and tweeting and it just kind of took off from there. And it was just a space where I could share because I think sometimes teachers are resistant or reluctant to share in their building because they worry about that judgment or, you know, that kind of stuff. Whereas when you're doing it on the Internet, at least to start, they're perfect strangers. And if somebody tells me my work sucks and they're a perfect stranger, I'm, I'm OK with that. But if it's the guy teaching in the room next to me, that's a little harder to take. So that's kind of where it started. And now I don't have that fear anymore because you, you just put it out there. And, and you let people judge it. And yeah, it's scary. But once you do it enough times, it's just kind of like, all right, not everybody's going to love everything I'm doing. And, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you do receive criticism, maybe on a message or something that you've written, how have you worked through that? Uh, I tell them they're wrong. Of course, obviously, <laughs> I tell them they're wrong. <laughs> yes. No, you know, it's funny. I wrote, a, I wrote a blog, gosh, many years ago. And I basically said special education is, uh, is BS. And I got... Oh, baby, I got all kinds of heat on that. But my concept was really just about the notion that we need paperwork to help a kid. And and so I got a lot of criticism, but it really allowed me to really work through and not just defend my point, but to have conversations with special education teachers who were really upset by that. And again, that whole empathy piece of seeing it from their side of things. Um, and so when I do get criticism, I do reach out. You know, I had somebody send me an email explaining why they were unfollowing me on Twitter. And I should not have been bothered by it, and I wasn't, but I had a conversation with the person. I'm like, well, well, why? And I want to understand because that's who I am. I want to not please people, but I want to understand where they're coming from. And I'm not going to be friends with everybody, and everybody's not going to like what I have to say. But if you're on social media to only listen to people you agree with, then you're probably doing it wrong to begin with. So in closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of being a leader? Oh, man. You know, I think the most enjoyable aspect of being a leader is when you see people that you're leading, whether it's, you know, because I think teachers are leaders with their students um, and whether you're leading a staff, whether you're leading whoever. And when you see them go off on their own, when they don't need you anymore, I think that is the most, you know, rewarding thing about being a leader is when you're not needed because people have gone to the place where you've led them and they can do it on their own. Um, I think that's, uh, that's a pretty powerful moment. Josh, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Um, you know, the, the nice thing is with a name like Stumpenhorst, I am pretty easy to find on social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, I'm Stump Teacher. All one word. My uh, website is joshstumpenhorst.com. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm pretty easy to get to and I love connecting. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on social media. Josh, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.